Let's look at John 11. I'm going to start in verse 38, and I'll read through 46. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound, hand and foot, with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him in. believed in him. Let's pray that the Lord would open our hearts as we look at his word. Father, thank you for your truth recorded in scripture for us. God, I trust and believe that every word of this is meaningful. Every word of this is helpful for us here today. And so I pray that your word would come alive in our minds and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in John chapter 11, of course. And if you were here last week, as Greg mentioned during worship, that we're kind of, we stopped in the middle of a story. And that story is the story of Lazarus dying. Jesus' good friend, Lazarus, has died, and he has gone to the funeral, and he meets, Lazarus's, meets with Lazarus' sisters, also good friends of his, and they're, they're, they can't help but to express their disappointment in Jesus. He has let them down. He has allowed their brother to die when they know good and well he could have made him healthy. And so Jesus promises them that they will see the glory of God. And that's where we pick up the story. Jesus is deeply moved. And he comes and he performs what is probably his greatest miracle yet, at least in our eyes, is the greatest miracle because it requires the greatest suspension of all natural laws. He does something that is completely impossible in the natural and so the question is, as we look at this passage together, the question in all of John's gospel is, who is Jesus? We've got this week and next week where we're going to spend uh, in this first part of John's gospel, the first 11 chapters, and then we're going to break and we're going to pick back up with the rest of John's gospel, which is the second half in the fall. And so what I want to do in these two weeks is I want to go back and I want to recap some of the things that John has been emphasizing from, from the first 11 chapters that we see appear here again. The question that this whole book, this whole gospel is trying to answer is, who is Jesus? The answer that we come to in this particular passage is that he's the one who defeated death. Excuse me. That's who Jesus is. If you want to know who Jesus is, and John's, John's writing so that many would know and believe in who he is, he's the one who defeated death. So as we look at this passage more closely, there are some things that I think John has been making sure, you know, you understand this book was meant really to be read in one setting. 
And so if you read this straight there, we've been preaching through this book since September. So we've been taking it little piece by little piece by little piece and be very easy to forget some of the things that we talked about way back in September. But so, so I want to go back and sort of recap some of those things that if you were reading this straight through, you would not have missed things that would be abundantly obvious to you. The first one is this, and you'll see this on your handout. Jesus invites us into his work. Jesus invites us into his work. Who is he? He's the one who defeated death. But more than that, he's the one who invites us into his work. In verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lay. He's inviting them in. Remove the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he has been dead for four days. Again, he, but he invites her in. He says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. God is a God of glory. And that means a lot of things. And it may mean a lot of things that we don't completely comprehend. But if none of us existed, God's glory would still fill the universe or his created world. He does, not, he does not need us to create glory for him. He does not need us to witness his glory. He is a God of glory. And, but the good thing about this God of glory is that he created you and I and invited us into his glory. He invites us to, to witness and to be, part, to be recipients and to be admirers, worshipers of his glory and of his goodness. And he does that by inviting us into the work that he is doing. What he's doing in this world, the world that he has created to display his glory, he invites you and I to come and to be a part of that work. We see this all throughout John. In John chapter 1, he reaches out to his first disciples. He says, follow me. He invites them in. In John chapter 4, he tells those same disciples, he says, open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. He invites them into the work. John chapter 9, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we must do, this is what Jesus said, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. We must do the works. Not just Jesus. He invites us in to his work. In and and, and Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 72 ahead of him. He sends them out to do the work. He actually gives them power and authority to heal diseases and to cast out demons. And the, the 72 come back rejoicing because he has invited them into the work. In John chapter 11, he takes the disciples with him to raise Lazarus. He invites them into the work. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples. He invites us into his work. Acts chapter 1, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on, me, on you and you will be my witnesses. He invites us into his work. This is a beautiful thing when you come to realize that God is not just doing incredible things in the world, but that he is inviting you to participate in those incredible things that he's doing. That's what it means to be a part of the church, to be a part of what God is doing, to, to not only be witnesses of what he's doing, but to be participants. It's incredible when you think. I often stop and think when I look at 
when I look at you guys, God, what are you doing? Why would you use people like this? <laughs> I often stop and think when I look in the mirror, God, what are you doing? This, that you've, there's got to be a better plan. There's got to be a better way. And yet he loves us and he invites us into his work. So the obvious question that we have to ask is, have you accepted that invitation? Are you a willing participant in what Jesus is doing in the world? Not just a spectator. You're all spectators. If you're here, you're a spectator. If you're here, you've shown a willingness to be a spectator. But are you a participant? Have you responded to the call that Jesus gave to the very first disciples? Come, follow me. Remember when he said, I will make you fishers of men. He's speaking to fishermen. He's speaking their language. They understood what it meant to go out and to work in the industry of fishing. And now he's saying, you're going to work in my kingdom. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to be a part of something far greater than fishing for fish. You will fish for men. He's inviting you. He wants you to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Have you accepted that call? And are you participating in his work? That's one of the things that's abundantly clear. Again, if you, if you just sat down and read through John, you, you would most likely be struck by the fact that Jesus keeps involving the people around. One of the, the, the themes that, st- that pops up again and again in John's gospel, we are invited into the work. The next one is this. Jesus' relationship with the Father is validated by his miracles. His relationship with the Father is validated by his miracles. Why does Jesus do all these miraculous things? Is it because he just likes showing off his power? Is it, <clears throat> is it mainly out of compassion for the people that he's, that he's doing the miracles for? I mean, all of those have a place. He does want to display his glory, and he does have compassion. But what you can't miss in the Gospel of John is that the primary reason for Jesus' miracles is that he is showing his relationship to the Father. He always ties his miracles to his relationship with God the Father. When, When he gets people's attention by doing something miraculous, he immediately starts talking about his relationship with the Father. Why does Jesus do miracles? He's he's validating before all of these witnesses his relationship with the Father. Let's look. Verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this. <clears throat> so that they may believe you sent me. After this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This is, this is incredible to hear. Jesus, in front of all of these people, begins speaking to the Father. Now, if you're around somebody who just randomly starts addressing somebody that you can't see, you might be tempted to think that they're crazy, that they've got something going on mentally. But if they back up that sort of bizarre behavior with doing something as miraculous as raising someone from the dead, then you have to acknowledge there's something more going on. Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. In front of all these people, he just starts talking to God the Father. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. 
Every time in John's gospel, Jesus is doing a miracle. He starts talking about his relationship with the Father. He does these things to validate that relationship, to show them that he has been sent from none other than God the Father. He has been sent from heaven above with this kind of authority. So that raises the question. We, we often, when someone close to us gets sick or someone in the church is sick, we, we ask for, for God to do something miraculous. But we don't always get the answer that we want. That was kind of the subject of last week's sermon, right? We don't always get the answer that we want. And then so we ask the, uh, the question, why doesn't God always heal? Why doesn't Jesus always bring the healing that we're seeking? Well, the answer is that his, his miracles were never merely about making physically whole someone who is sick. We know that, that God sometimes does greater works through the ministry than through them being healed. But during his earthly ministry, he validated his relationship with the Father by showing his miraculous power. And so he brings healing. The the, the scriptures, especially the gospels, are full of examples of Jesus goes around and people bring sick people to him. People even bring demon-possessed people to him, which had to have been absolutely crazy to witness. And he heals them and makes them well. But what if... What if you were one of the ones who lived in that day and who lived in some of those cities and Jesus didn't heal you? It happened. He didn't heal everybody on the earth and he still doesn't heal everyone on the earth today. What kind of conclusions might we come to? Again, last week, we talked about some things to remember during that time, but I want to tie this into that in the sense that Jesus, the purpose for Jesus' miracles was that he was showing that the Father has sent him. He's backing up his words with his actions. It's one of the things you see all throughout the Gospel of John. And we don't want to miss that as we come to the end of the first part of John. We don't want to miss the purpose for Jesus' miracles. Now, does Jesus still do miracles? Does he still respond to our prayer? Yeah, I absolutely believe that he does. In fact, whenever I'm praying for somebody who's sick, I always pray for the best possible outcome from my perspective. And that's usually healing. I, I, I pray, and, and I do believe there are times when God answers that. There were at least two times this week that I can think of that I felt like God specifically answered my prayers and, and, and gave me, let's, I don't take this too strong, it gave me what I was asking for. He gave me what I was praying for. And not gave me, they were all, both prayers for other people. There was an instance where, I don't want to go into all the details um, because of a personal connection, but there was an instance where there was a guy needing a situation to work out that there didn't seem to be uh, a good earthly answer. And I was praying for him. Praying. <laughs> and I said, yeah, actually I was. I was praying for exactly what happened. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. I wish it did. But I do believe that God answers prayer in the way that he sees best and sometimes what we're asking for and what he sees as best perfectly line up he says here you go but we need to remember God is not some genie in a bottle we don't just get what we ask for all the time he's a father that loves us enough to not always give us what we ask for 
So the purpose of his miracles, specifically in the Gospels, are that he's validating his relationship with the Father. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Jesus has authority over life and death and even over our bodies. He has authority over life and death and even over our bodies. John's gospel again and again is explicitly teaching us about Jesus' authority. And where does his authority come from? It comes from his relationship with the Father. Because the Father, who is God and creator of everything, has sent him, he has that authority. He even says, I and the Father are one. And he even prays that we would be one with him the way that he and the Father are one. He has this authority. He has authority over life He has authority over death, and he even has authority over our bodies. Let's talk about what I mean by that. Let's look at verse 44. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. What caused this man to to rise from the dead and come walking out of the tomb? His own will, his own volition, his own desire, the tears of his sisters, the grief of the people around him, none of those things can cause someone to come back to life. In fact, his own will and his own volition regarding his life on earth, and, and we know that grief does not bring anyone back from the dead. What caused this man to rise again? The authority of Jesus. It's the only thing that had any say in this whatsoever. He had authority over Lazarus's life. He chose to allow Lazarus to die. And then he shows that he has authority. He, he's, he's not subject to the will of human beings in that sense. He's not subject to the desire of uh, the desires of Lazarus when he was sick, no doubt, praying that God would heal him. He's not subject to the desires of his sisters who definitely were praying that Jesus would heal him because they sent for Jesus to come and actually do that. And then when he didn't, they expressed their disappointment in him. He's not subject to that. He has authority over Lazarus's life and he has authority over death. Once again, completely apart from anything that anybody else did, he causes Lazarus to rise from the dead. Jesus has authority over life and death. And he he does not hand over that authority to anyone else. This is both perhaps scary and hopefully comforting. It's scary because we don't like to have to face the reality that that we're not in control of our lives. It can be scary to turn over to somebody else control of of what's going to happen to you. But the reality is is that we never had control to begin with. It always belonged to Jesus. as, As scary as that might be, it should be just as comforting because we know and that he has proven his love for us. Therefore, we can trust. We can trust him with the authority over our lives 
and even over our deaths. And we can trust him with the authority over the lives of our loved ones and even the death of us here in this story. You've got Lazarus, the one who, who has to admit and, and come to face the facts that he does not have control over his life. No doubt he wanted to stay alive and was unable to do so. And then we have the sisters, those who love him and care about him. And not just the sisters, but there were many people who loved him. But these are the characters that we see in the story. And none of them have the authority that Jesus has. That's because Jesus has authority over life and death and even over our bodies. And that, that means that our bodies matter. Our bodies matter to him He created our bodies, and our bodies should matter to us. Now, we can, can, I guess, kind of go a lot of different directions uh, with, with all of that, but at the very least, we should acknowledge that Jesus has some authority over this body. Our, our culture and our society wants to say, it's my body, I'll do whatever I want with it. Well, it, he has given you some authority over your body. But ultimately, he still maintains overall authority over your body. It's not your body to do whatever you want with it. It's his body. You are his creation. And you will do with it what he has commanded you to do. That's the way we ought to think. That's the way we ought to live. Let me show you in Scripture a couple of these points I'm trying to make. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57. In regards to life and death and the resurrection of the dead. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written, where death is your victory. Where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has authority over life. Jesus has authority over death. Jesus even has authority over our bodies. And the good news of that is that he loves our lives. And he he carefully ordains our death. And he lovingly created our bodies. All for his glory and for our good. Therefore, death, where's your victory? If Jesus even has authority over, we think of death in the natural mind. We think of death as something inevitable that unfortunately happens to us. We have no control over it, so it scares us. We don't know when or how it's going to happen. And so we think of, of death in, in, in just the grimmest way possible. But Jesus has authority over death. And he has ordained death and he has ordained your death in a way to reveal his glory and to increase your good. Therefore, death, where's your victory? We are ruled and we are loved 
by the one who has destroyed death. Its victory is no longer there. Its sting is no longer there. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory. Even in death, he gives us victory. And he has a plan for our bodies. I love love that saying, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So he's going to give us a new body, a body that can inherit the kingdom of God. A body capable of of living in and experiencing the full presence of God for all of eternity without the the corruptible nature of sin any any more involved. This mortal body will be clothed with immortality. Psalm 139, very familiar passage of scripture to many of us, tells us how God views our bodies. Verse 13 says, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. What a picture that is. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. You see here again the theme even in the Old Testament of of God's authority over our lives, God's authority over our deaths, and, and God's authority over our bodies. We are created by him, remarkably and wondrously made. What a thing to be created by the God of the universe. To not just be some random collection of cells that just happened to evolve over billions and billions of years, but to be intentionally created. Every single piece and every single part of you, every cell in your body was created and formed by God with purpose, with love in his mind he created you. Yes, we live in a fallen world. These bodies are broken. They're not everything we want them to be. If you're, if you're anything like me, you, you experience the frustration of the, the weaknesses and the failures of these bodies that we have. But they're just a glimpse of what is to come. One day God will replace this body with a new body. And he will put on display his authority over our lives his authority over our death, and his authority over our bodies. And we'll inherit something far greater, incorruptible, unblemished, perfectly capable of serving God without without restriction. What a day that will be. This is one of the things that we see throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus' authority. He speaks with authority. He acts with authority. He challenges the authorities with his authority. And it's enough, it's enough to make him a lot of enemies. It's enough to make people, people very upset with him and angry with him to the, fact, to the point where they're conspiring to kill him. And so the final thing that I want to remind us of from the Gospel of John is that Jesus is accepted by some and rejected by others. Jesus is accepted by some and rejected by others. This passage in John chapter 11 is going to conclude 
with this stark contrast of responses. We're going to see it's, it's a watershed moment again in Jesus' ministry where people are going to go in one direction or the other. So we know that there's already a plan to arrest and to even kill Jesus. That's the reason why he had left Jerusalem. That's the reason why the disciples are a little concerned about going back near Jerusalem because they know there are Jewish people there waiting to arrest him and to kill him. In fact, the disciples, if you remember from earlier in the chapter, the disciples become convinced that if they go to Lazarus's funeral, that they, along with Jesus, are going to be killed by the Jews. But that's a risk that they accepted. So we see here in verse 45, after Jesus performs this miracle of resurrecting Lazarus, it says in 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. Many believed. Many changed their minds about Jesus. Many, and let's not speculate too far, but I think the implication here is that when, when, when John says many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did, he's referring to those who were of the, of the belief that Jesus was a heretic and that Jesus was to be arrested and that he was be, to be condemned for his actions. But now many of them believe. And you think, of course they believed. He just, he just resurrected somebody from the dead. That's, that is the most incredible thing that... that, that we almost can conceive of in terms of the types of miracles that Jesus was doing. Maybe it was a fluke that, that he laid his hand on somebody who was sick and they, and they suddenly got better. Maybe that blind man in John chapter 9 was never really blind. Maybe the whole thing was an act. Maybe it was some kind of hoax. We see this today. We, we, we see people who, have, who claim to have healing power and, and, and then there's some investigation done and it was actually just a hoax. Maybe that's all that's going on with Jesus' entire ministry until they come to this point. They were there when Lazarus was sick. They, some of them witnessed him take his final breath. Think about that. They saw him die. And now for four days, he's been in the tomb. If he wasn't dead when they put him in there, he's dead now. He was already sick, and, and by implication of that, not even. This man is not okay. He's definitely gone. And that's the reason why Jesus waited so long to show up to meet with the grieving Mary and Martha. He wanted everybody there to be sure that he was dead. And we best believe they were sure. If Jesus needed to wait a year, he would have done it. Four days was enough. They were convinced. He was as dead as he could be. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. You and I have never experienced that type of power. To, to say to somebody who's as dead as dead can be, wake up, come on out. And he comes back from being dead all the way back to life. How could you not believe? And many did. Many would agree with us. 
Many would say, that's enough for me. I believe. That's what they did. But verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It doesn't even say they didn't believe. Just that they rejected him. It's not that they weren't, it's not that they weren't impressed by what he did. There's no indication of that. They, they couldn't help but be impressed. It's that they didn't like the implications of what that meant. And we'll see that next week as we look at the conclusion of chapter 11. We'll see what it was about Jesus' power that they didn't like. It was what it meant for them. It meant that they weren't the authority anymore. It meant that they weren't in charge. And you and I have, have to face the same reality. If Jesus has authority over our lives, if Jesus has authority over our bodies, then what does that make us? Are we willing to accept his authority or do we reject him? Signs in and of themselves just won't convince them to surrender to Jesus. We often think, man, if God would just do this or that, maybe so-and-so would believe. And we were reminded here that it's not a lack of evidence that people don't believe in Jesus. It's the condition of their hearts. Therefore, we must pray for God to change their hearts, not just for him to provide more evidence. There's sufficient evidence they have the same evidence that billions of believers over the last 2,000 years have had. What they need is not more miracles. What they need is not more signs. What they need is, is not more manifestation of his power. What they need is a change of heart. Because Jesus is accepted by some, but he's rejected by others. I think of the story Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. Different Lazarus, not the same Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus is the story about um, a guy who had everything in life and a guy who had nothing in life. And then when they died, they, they were um, uh, in the presence of God and in the presence of Abraham. And um, the one who had everything in life now has nothing and he's in torment. He has, he has been separated from God's presence. And the man, Lazarus, who had nothing, has been welcomed into the presence of God. And the man who has been separated from the presence of God wants help. And he wants Lazarus, this man whom he rejected in life, to actually come and to provide relief for him. And, and he, the answer that he gets is that that's not going to happen. So then he says, this man who is cast out from the presence of God, he says, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, speaking of Lazarus, because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. In other words, they have the scriptures. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be before his own death and resurrection. He knew that even his own resurrection, not just Lazarus's resurrection, but Jesus knew that his own resurrection would not be enough to convince those who have rejected him. It should be our prayer for those that we love, that we know, and that who are around us who have rejected Jesus, that God would change their hearts. 
It's not more evidence that they need. It's a change of heart. But John reminded us in the very beginning of his gospel, one of, one of the, again, let me remind you, I'm trying to point out things that we've seen again and again so that we don't miss them as we conclude this first part of, of John's gospel. This is how John started his gospel back in chapter 1. In verse 10 through 13, he said, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believed in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Some will reject him. Some will receive him. Those who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. That's our aim, that more people would become children of God, that more people would receive the life that Jesus Christ gives. I want to invite the worship team to come and prepare to lead us in worship, and I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, you have sent your son, given him authority over life and death, given him authority to, to, to cause us to be born again. And God, I pray first and foremost for, for those of us who are in this room today. God, if there's anyone here who thus far has rejected you, but today they want to accept you. They believe to save the lost here on earth, taking the pain. And they believe that by going to the cross that Jesus died in our place, taking the, payment, or taking the penalty and making the payment for our sins. And today they want to ask you to come and bring salvation to their lives. God, would you come into those hearts and into those lives like a flood, bringing salvation and eternal life new life. Cause them right now in these moments to be born again. And God, we celebrate that you give this gift of salvation. Lord, for the rest of us, as we think, as we contemplate the gospel of John and what it means for us, and some of these things that, that these points that John wanted to drive home as he wrote his gospel, as, as your Holy Spirit inspired him. God, help us to, to Remember and to live in the reality that you have authority over our lives and to rest in that knowing that you care for us. Our life is in your hands. Our death is in your hands. You have not tossed us in to a, a, a universe of random and inexplainable events. You've placed us in your creation over which you exert complete control. And you love us and you do all things for our good. Help us to rest in that. And God, as we think about those who responded to this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, it grieves us to know that, that some rejected you, even in the face of such grace. But yet we're reminded of how many people around us today that still reject you. God, would you soften their hearts? Cause them to be born again 
to see you with new eyes, to believe and to trust in you. And God, I pray that you would use us as you've invited us into your work to go and to take the gospel to those who are around us this week, witnesses. We ask for the strength to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.